I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The number of the day is 52.4 billion. That is how many American dollars Disney paid to buy most of Fox's movie and television holdings, 21st Century Fox and 21st Century Fox Television, which are huge holdings, a huge number of titles, big number of movies and shows that are owned under that Fox library. Chances are you probably won't notice the ramifications of this deal much until about 2019 when Disney's streaming network is supposed to launch. They're probably going to pull almost all of the Fox holdings from Netflix, Amazon, and possibly Hulu and put them on their own streaming network. That would include tons of movies and TV shows like This Is Us, which is produced by Fox despite airing on NBC. So there's a bunch of new hit shows, old hit shows, hit movies, a bunch of your favorite things ever. Anything that ever had the, you know, the Fox fanfare at the beginning. <laughs> Anything that ever had that at the beginning, it's pretty much all owned by Disney now. Just to let you know. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with shows like The Simpsons and things like that and where the rights to The Simpsons. Is The Simpsons going to stream on Disney's streaming app? I mean, wouldn't that be crazy, right, instead of being on FXX? I don't know. It'll be interesting to see, though. So there you go. That's today's number, $52.4 billion American dollars. That is a hell of a price tag. This is the Stream Police Podcast. The Stream Police Podcast is brought to you by OverdueReview.com. Since 2013, the staff at Overdue Review have written opinions on hundreds of movies, TV shows, and albums. To see which titles have been given perfect grades, click to the Five Star Club page at OverdueReview.com. Hello again, my friend. I'm Clint Davis, movies and TV editor at OverdueReview.com. In just a little bit, we'll be hearing from our good friend, our man in Amsterdam, Andy Sedlak, the music editor at OverdueReview.com. We love sitting in the closet, sitting in the basement, bringing it to you guys for absolutely no money whatsoever. We do it for the love of the game. And another thing I do because I love it, because I have no corporate overlords, is that I sit in my closet in Cincinnati, Ohio, where I record my segments of the show, and I light my stogie up. I smoke a cigar while I talk to you. Just adds an ambience to the entire thing. Let me go ahead and light that up.
Very good. A little Christmas stogie, a post-Christmas stogie. I know, talking about Christmas right now, when you are listening to this, my friend, is probably it, it probably sounds ancient right now, right? Isn't Christmas like the furthest thing from your mind at this point? I mean, it's over. It's you, you're you've moved on. You're thinking about the new year. You're thinking about how shitty winter is now that Christmas is over, and there's really nothing else to look forward to until like March Madness. Um, you know, it it, it kind of sucks. I get it, but I just cr- really quick on Christmas. I wanted to talk about what. I think I've realized over time might be my favorite Christmas movie ever made. And I'm going to talk about that coming up in just a few minutes. But first, I got to start the show as I always do with a look back in the annals of television history, taking a look at those beloved theme songs that open up the great shows from TV history. In my segment, the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. And for our 24th installment into the canon of greatest TV show theme songs, I'm going to take you back to 1965 with a theme song that, as I've said many times before, the greatest TV theme songs are identifiable by their first few seconds. And this one fits that bill perfectly. I guarantee you, if you've never seen an episode of Green Acres, you probably started humming along or even singing the theme song right there. You know that Green Acres is the place to be, and you know that farm living is the life for me. The theme from Green Acres is an all-time classic with an opening that still gets played on the organ at sporting events across the country, even though the show has not been on the air for, get this, 47 years 47 years, all right? The show has not been on the air, but that song still gets played at sporting events. And people like will still know what it is. They might not know what Green Acres was. They might not know about Eva Gabor and Eddie Albert and of course Arnold Ziffel the pig, the beloved pig, but they know that song. They know bum 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 bum. You know that because it's iconic. <laughs> Another great thing about the Green Acres theme song, it tells you the entire idea of the show in just a few lines. Another thing that a lot of the greatest TV show theme songs of all time used to do back in the day. It's not in vogue anymore. Nobody does that anymore. Everybody thinks it's cheesy, but it's fucking cool, man. It tells you the whole premise of the show. It it makes you feel like an expert on the show, even if you never, this is the first time you're ever sitting down to watch it. You're like, oh, okay, I get it. Green Acres is the place to be. So just from hearing this theme song, you know that Green Acres is a fish-out-of-water show about a couple of New Yorkers who move to the country, and hilarity ensues. That's all you need to know. New York is where I'd rather stay. I love that the song is actually sung also by the two lead actors of the show. Did you know this? The two singers doing the song are Eddie Albert and Eva Gabor, who were the stars of Green Acres. And Eva Gabor, who went on to play Miss Bianca 
or Miss Bianca, however you like to say it, in the Rescuers movies, some of my favorites when I was a kid, especially the Rescuers Down Under. That's what I know her the most from. Her like thick Hungarian accent makes it so much more funny when she's singing this song, especially when she sings the part where she goes, Darling, I love you, but give me Park Avenue. Darling, I love you, but give me Park Avenue. Darling. Darling, I love you. It's awesome. I love the Green Acres theme. This show, Green Acres, was commissioned by CBS after the success of some other rural set shows like the Beverly Hillbillies. I guess Beverly Hillbillies wasn't really set in a rural area. The whole point was that these were a bunch of hillbillies who moved to Beverly Hills. But a show like Petticoat Junction that was actually set in the same uh, setting as Green Acres, a place called Hooterville, USA. Talk about a great name for a setting. But Green Acres was a little bit different in just how absurd and clever it was. It was it made it, you know, different than those other like hick shows from that day. The show was one of the first that broke the fourth wall regularly, and it even had bizarre moments like Eva Gabor reading the credits as they passed by her face, even though her husband couldn't actually see them. So he didn't know what the hell was going on, but she's reading the credits as they're going by and the people who actually wrote the show. I mean, talk about breaking the fourth wall. Very surreal. I mean, and this is like the mid-60s. It would have been a great show to watch if you were like hot dropping acid or something like that. I mean, that, this, would have been, this would have been like dream television for that kind of thing. The chores. The stores. Fresh air. So the lovely theme song from Green Acres was written by a guy named Vic Mizzy. How about that name? Vic Mizzy. I'll give you like one guess as to where he's from. He's a good old New York City boy who served in the Navy during World War II and went to NYU. That's just the most New York name ever, right? Vic Mizzy? Victor Mizzy? He also wrote the theme song for the Adams Family. How's that for versatility? Vic Mizzy also wrote some tunes in the 1950s that were hits for the Andrews Sisters and some other artists. He, he later did some movie scores, including a bunch of Don Knotts vehicles, including The Ghost and Mr. Chicken and The Reluctant Astronaut. You are my wife. Goodbye, city life. Green Acres, we are there. But alas, in the end, Green Acres had a sad ending. Actually, it had no ending at all, which is the saddest ending of any kind for a television show. Despite being a hit show for six seasons and a reliable rating success for CBS, executives at the network canceled it as part of what is now known as the Rural Purge, which I had never heard of before I researched this. The Rural Purge was a thing that in the like 1970, 1971, 72 seasons in television – a bunch of networks, but especially CBS, canceled a ton of shows that were set like in rural settings, set in the country, because they were feeling pressure to do more shows that were set in urban environments. So Green Acres got the axe, Hee Haw got the axe, Lassie got the axe. Can you believe Lassie was still on in 1971? Isn't that crazy to think about? The new Andy Griffith show got the axe. A bunch of shows ended up being canceled for really no reason. Um, and so... Green Acres never even got a final episode. It just kind of was over. So if you go back and you watch those six seasons of Green Acres, you're going to be disappointed because there's really no ending to the show. But Green Acres will live on here at the Stream Police Podcast as one of our picks for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. Acres, 1965 to 71 on CBS. Pretty cool show. Like I said, 
a little bit bizarre, a little uh, a little strange, a little experimental uh, for a sitcom back in the day on the network. Got to like that. All right, let's move on. As I said, Christmas just passed us by, another Christmas season. And there are plenty of great Christmas movies out there. I told you a couple years ago here on the Stream Police that I've never seen uh, It's a Wonderful Life, and I've still actually never seen It's a Wonderful Life. Just haven't watched it. I don't want to watch it when it's on TV because it's like five hours long um, with commercials and shit. I'd rather just get it on DVD and, and check it out, watch it. So I'm going to have to get it from the library one of these days. So I've never seen that one, but I, I've seen a, you know a ton of Christmas movies over the years. And there are a lot of them that I like an awful lot. I've told you also before on the show here about my affinity for Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. You can read at OverdueReview.com my piece from last year about why Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, all the reasons why Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is the greatest Christmas TV special ever made, because it just is flat out. And I give you a lot of good reasons there at the website. But I think I've realized now, after years of, of thinking about it, what my favorite Christmas movie ever made is. I have to tell you. That on December 11th, my favorite Christmas movie ever turned 25 years old. December 11th, 1992. That was the day The Muppet Christmas Carol hit theaters. And I'm telling you, I'm not kidding around here. I think it is legitimately my favorite non-comedy Christmas movie because Christmas Vacation I'll watch anytime. I, I watched it again this year. I watch it every year. And it's just a it's a great movie all the way through. But the Muppet Christmas Carol is just a great movie all around. Not just it's it's it, it is funny too, but it's such a sweet movie. And it's such a perfect Christmas film about the spirit of what the holiday is about and about helping your fellow man. And it's not a religious thing. It's just a beautiful movie about community and about the holiday and about everything that makes the holiday so great, despite the weather being so terrible outside. I, I tell you what, man, I wore my VHS copy of The Muppet Christmas Carol out when I was a kid, and I've watched it again in recent years. This is not one of those nostalgic things where I'm like, yeah, when I was a kid, I loved it, but I haven't revisited it. I've watched it again uh, the last couple of years, and it's still just as good, if not better, than I remember when I was a kid. The movie was directed by Jim Henson's son, Brian Henson. And Jim Henson had died like two years before they made this movie. He died in 1990. So this one obviously meant a lot. This was the first big production to be done without Jim Henson, the almighty Jim Henson, at you know somewhere on the ship. So this, was, this one meant a lot, and it counted for a lot here. It was written by Jerry Jewell, who was the head writer on The Muppet Show back in the day and had done a bunch of The Muppet movies, had written the screenplays. It tells Charles Dickens' classic story of Ebenezer Scrooge with a cast essentially made up of all the Muppets that you love and Michael Caine. The great Michael Caine stands in as Ebenezer Scrooge, and he just knocks it out of the park, man. I mean, let's talk about this cast for a minute. You've got Gonzo playing Charles Dickens himself, the narrator of the, of the movie. Kermit is Bob Cratchit, of course. Miss Piggy is Emily Cratchit his wife, Statler and Waldorf, the old guys who used to sit up in the balcony and rip on everybody. They play the Marley brothers. And it, that was just genius right there. And Sam Eagle plays young Scrooge's schoolmaster. And there's so many other great casting moments um, here. Fozzie's got a very good role too. It's just a, it's a, such a cool movie and they found great ways to incorporate 
all of the uh, the great Muppet characters. The movie is so much fun, man. And and the story, of course, is perfect. It's one of the greatest stories ever written by anyone. The costumes and the sets are just gorgeous. And the original music might be the capper on the entire thing. It, it's This movie is a musical. And the original songs are fantastic. These are not like slapped together songs that let, let's just get this out so we can sell soundtrack copies like they used to do back in the day. This was this is a legitimate I mean, this is like a Broadway caliber you know selection of songs, probably not enough songs to go on Broadway. But there's a good number of songs and they're all really good and they're, they're some of them are fun, some of them are very sweet, very touching. The original songs in this movie were written by the legendary Paul Williams who I watched a documentary on him, you know, a few years ago, and it was really good. If you can find it, I, I cannot, I can't remember the name of it right now. But Paul Williams, he's the guy who wrote the Rainbow Connection, you know, the the great Muppet song there that Kermit the Frog sang. And Paul Williams pretty much wrote every hit song that made you cry back from the nineteen seventies. Um, he wrote some stuff for the Carpenters. He wrote some stuff for everybody, really. And his songs in this movie are no different. I mean, this is more great songwriting from Paul Williams. You've got Kermit singing. One More Sleep Till Christmas uh, in the early moments of the movie. And the song is so fun and so comforting. Listening to Bob Cratchit sing this while he cleans up after Scrooge has left the office. And everyone, his family, we're having so much fun. After all, there's only one more sleep till Christmas. It's just so sweet, so innocent. And there's nothing tongue-in-cheek about it at all. It's, it's sentimental. Sure, it's sentimental, but it's, it's beautiful sentiment and then there's the tiny tim song bless us all that i swear to god makes me cry every time i see it it brings tear to my tears to my eye every time i hear see this song and when i was a kid it brought tears to my eyes and i thought that was so strange because i never really cried during movies or anything but the muppet christmas carol and the tiny tim song bless us all always for whatever reason just set me off i mean it is just written to make you cry bless us all but you've really got to see like the little hobbled you know tiny frog singing with all his family members around him in their little you know, piddly house. And, oh, it's just so, God, it is so sweet. Such a great song. The soundtrack to The Muppet Christmas Carol was so good, in fact, that it got a four and a half star rating from all music, which is pretty rare from them. And like I said, Michael Caine. I mean, where do you even begin with Michael Caine? He plays the whole thing so straight that it just proves even further what a great actor he is. I mean, this was the guy from The Italian Job, from tough guy, cockney roles like Alfie and, you know, get Carter. I mean, this this guy, Michael Caine is not like, and now everyone knows him like for Alfred and, and all the Christopher Nolan movies. But, I mean, he was like a hard-ass, iconic actor for those kind of roles back in the day. And here he is in The Muppet Christmas Carol playing like the ultimate asshole, Scrooge. And like I said, he plays the whole thing so straight. He's in these scenes surrounded by Muppets, just tons of Muppets all around him, little Muppet rats and Muppet frogs and Muppet pigs and everything else. And he's playing it like he's standing in a scene with Marlon Brando and Paul Newman or something. I mean, it's 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 brilliant. And 
at the end, you know, when Scrooge is finally filled with joy and he's being thankful for everything at the end of the picture, he's screaming in the streets, he's handing out gifts. It's a beautiful scene. I mean, when Beaker gives Scrooge his scarf, talk about moments that'll make you cry, man. And then Scrooge goes into his own little song. Yes, and every night will end and every day will start with a grateful prayer and a thankful heart. Just a truly touching movie all the way to the very end. You got that that little dinner scene at the Cratchit family table with Tiny Tim where they make room for Scrooge to come in. Even though he's been such a dick to everybody through his entire life, they forgive him and let him sit at the table and he brings some food for him. And it's just a God, it's a beautiful story, beautiful movie. I think it's the ultimate Christmas Carol adaptation. And I'm, I think it's the, the best Christmas movie. It's my favorite Christmas movie of all, of all time. I don't think there's a better Christmas movie that's ever been made than The Muppet Christmas Carol. I love it. It's got everything. It's got songs. It's got, you know, some dancing. It's got some comedy. It's got some, some moments that will tug at the heartstrings. Great characters. Great story. Um, great acting. Michael Caine's awesome. And it's just, uh, who doesn't love The Muppets? I mean, how can you beat them? So you'd, you'd have to be made of stone not to be moved while watching The Muppet Christmas Carol. I don't care how old you are, but if you've never seen it, find this movie, check it out somewhere, get it on DVD, find it at your library. It's not streaming anywhere right now uh, for free. I mean, you can you can rent it for like $2 or whatever, but give it a watch, man. I don't even care if Christmas is over yet. Just It's a great wintertime movie. Give it a watch and make sure you have the tissues ready. So happy 25th birthday, The Muppet Christmas Carol, one of my truly favorite movies uh, of all time. And in talking about art, you know, movies, TV that strikes right to the core, I want to keep that going here by talking about uh, a TV show that just wrapped its second season on FX, my favorite TV network, and that's Better Things, Pamela Adlon's show about a uh, single working mom in Hollywood who is raising three daughters of various ages and basically kind of raising her own mother as well all while steadily working and still maintaining a, a great relationship with her friends. And, um, boy, I tell you, there's just there's a lot to love about this show, especially in such a small package, which is 20 episodes over the course of two seasons. Like I said, season two just wrapped. I reviewed season one last year whenever it was done, and I raved about it then, and I'm going to keep raving about it here for season two. I'm just so glad that we have a show around like this. This is one of TV's ultimate hidden gems. You know, there are a lot of hidden gems in TV right now because there's so many out there and there's just not enough critical praise to go around. But Better Things is truly one of those hidden gems. I mean, it's just hidden on FX. It's just sitting there during the fall season and no one really talks about it. I I never really read anything about it, but it, it's a fantastic show. I'm telling you, I, I, I feel like I don't steer you guys wrong. And Better Things is one of those shows that anyone can enjoy. Doesn't matter what you're into. Now there's no action in it, obviously. It's not an action show. So if the, if you have to have action, you're not going to like it. If you have to have sci-fi, you're not going to like it. But if you like anything that if you like comedy and you like dramedy and you like things that you can relate to a little bit. I don't care that it's a show about all women. If you're a man, you can relate to this show. Trust me. You'll remember growing up these kind of things that they're going through and and, and you'll think about your own mom and think about how great she was or how not great she was either way however it goes and you'll wish that sam fox was your mom 
this show deserves more love. And I think because it's not streaming on Netflix or it's not on Amazon that people just don't find it for whatever reason. But do what you can and try to track down better things. I, if you have the FX app, I'm pretty sure you can watch at least season two all the way through right now. But you you want to go back and watch it all the way from the start because it is one of those shows that has some little arcs. It's not crazy with the story arcs, but you know the, the, the show you do want to kind of watch from the start just to really fully get a grasp on these characters. It's a character study first and foremost. They're not big storylines, big plots that are dangling all over the place. This is a character-driven show for sure. It's very well acted, very well written, uh, and well filmed as well. Um, it's it's such a funny and cutting show that fully gets us invested into its characters. And it's cutting in that the language is cutting. It's so honest. It's so brutal uh, about what it's like to grow up, about what it's like to be an adult. And this quartet of females that lead this show, um, led by Pamela Adlon as Sam Fox, um, it's just very well-made television. And her daughter's all need Sam more than they act like they do, and that's completely clear to the audience from the start. I mean, Sam is the glue that holds this family together, and her daughters really don't care at all. They act like they don't even need her. But if Sam was gone, I mean, the whole this family would fall apart. These girls would fall apart. I don't know that I have much confidence that they would be able to stand on their own two feet uh, at this point without their mother being around. I mean, she's that important to them. And I tell you, better things, like I said, it's got a little bit of everything. This show has made me laugh harder than most shows on TV right now. But it's also had a couple of the most beautiful scenes that I can ever remember seeing on cable TV. I want to point those out to you right now. Season one, first off, had an episode in it called Future Fever. And it's got this scene where Sam takes her oldest daughter, Max, shopping. At this point, Max is like... 16, 17 years old. She's on the verge of becoming an adult. You know, that that just kind of weird place where you really do feel like you shouldn't have to listen to your parents anymore, but you really do need to still. And so for Max, it's finally sunken into her how much the half-assing that she's done in her classes in high school may end up hurting her down the road. And she gets very down. She gets very um, self-conscious about it. And she makes herself very vulnerable while they're out shopping together. So what Sam does is she stands with her daughter at a full-length mirror in some store in California, and while Max tries on a suit, Sam drops a little bit of knowledge on the young one. Listen, baby, your future is yours. You can be anything you want. You know those people that you see every day that look like they have their shit together and they made all the right choices? and how impossible it seems just to get to that place. Well, look, look at you. You look like one of those people. And all they did was put on the clothes. And honey, you can be anything you wanna be, seriously. But also, if you just get a job and get by, you're still gonna love your life because life is good, even at its worst. You came here just to say that to me? Why? Was it shitty? I thought it was going to be good. It wasn't shitty. You liked it. Mm-hmm. I love you. I love you, too. I love you. That scene right there, that was the moment that I realized just how much I really did love Better Things. I, I, I was immediately hooked on how much I loved this show right at that moment. Then... Season two might have even topped that moment with an even better moment. They had an episode that aired in October in this past season called Eulogy. 
And the whole episode was this brilliant look at how thankless, first off, the job of being an actor is, but also the job of being a single parent can be. And also how fucking tough both of those things are, because Sam's an actor, and she kind of exists on the fringes. She's not like a star, a TV star, but she's certainly, she's a name. She's made enough money in the business. She was a child actor. So growing up, she was like a kid star. She made a lot of money that way. And now she does voice work, which is what Pamela Adlon really does do. Um, She does voice work as well as now, you know, doing some more acting in the flesh as well. But so it's, I love that episode because it shows you how hard and how brutal being an actor really is and how not glamorous most acting jobs are and how it's really a blue-collar profession uh, at the end of the day for most actors. For like 99% of all actors, it's a blue-collar profession. For the 1% that you see on the red carpets all the time, those are that's a different, like they exist in their own world, and Sam is not in that world. But the scene really shows how fucking tough being a parent is and how thankless being a single parent is. So finally, when Sam's had just enough with her kid's selfishness, she tells them all to pretend that she's dead. And she tells them that they have to eulogize her as she lays down in the middle of the living room floor pretending to be dead with candles lit around the room. And it leads to just one of the best scenes I've ever seen on TV. How about Can we watch RuPaul Drag Race? Being the president yes, of the United States. Maybe. Yeah. Oh, for a there's second. your mom. Oh, oh did you, what? Did That's not the channel it's on. Well, okay. Mom, <laughs> well, do you want me to go back so you can watch your thing? No, it's fine. Just, jeez. Mom, what do you want? I don't know. It just sucks that you didn't go back. Mom, don't do that. It's not fair. Okay, I don't care. Forget it. They'll love you when you're dead. That's right. When you're dead, they'll watch all of your stuff and they'll be amazed at what you've done. They'll say beautiful things at your funeral about how they were always inspired by your career. No. No. I want it now. I want it now. I don't want to have to wait till I'm dead for my kids to appreciate me. I wish I had a clip of the actual funeral scene, but that was just the setup. Unfortunately, I couldn't find one on YouTube, but I'm telling you, the Better Things episode, um, Eulogy, it, it, it was just, it was perfect television. One of the best episodes of TV I saw all last year, all this year, bar none. The problem, though, with both of those beautiful scenes from Better Things that I shared with you, both of them were written or co written by Louis C.K. Oh, no. Every episode, in fact, of the series Better Things, except for one episode, so 19 of the 20 episodes of Better Things, has been written or co-written by Louis C.K. So what's that going to mean now? That he's not going to have anything to do with the show, which has been confirmed. He is not having anything to do with the show moving forward. His name's been taken off of it as a producer. He's not going to be writing episodes anymore. His production company will not be producing it anymore. So... What's that going to mean for this beautiful little gem of a show? And how fucked up is it that such a great feminist show was written by a guy who was just jerking off in front of any woman that you know he could get within 20 feet of? It's supremely fucked up, isn't it? Now, I still have high hopes for better things because Pamela Adlon has shown that she's the one that's really in charge of it. She directed all 10 episodes of the past season. And they were fantastic. They were they looked good. They were experimental. She tried some different things. None of them looked like what, you know, like a first-time director or anything would do. These were like well-made television episodes. And if you liked the show Louie, 
you know, back on FX back in its day, because that show's over now. There's no no more of that. You know I was a big fan of the show, Louie. Better Things is the closest thing to Louie that we have on TV right now. So if you're into that, this is this is that. This is as close to that as you're going to get. But Better Things is better than Louie in some ways. Not as good in other ways, but it's better um, in some ways, certainly. I think it's it's definitely a more human show than Louie was. But so, you know, Adlon has co-written many of the show's episodes. She starred in every single one of them. She directed, like I said, every episode of the past season. So I think without Louis C.K. moving forward, I think the show's going to be fine. It's her vehicle, clearly. I think she's going to be able to replace Louis C.K.'s brain. You know, there are plenty of great writers out there, TV writers, people she's worked with, people who have gone uncredited on some of those, um, you know, great episodes in the past who's, who've given, like, little ideas here and there, I'm sure. Uh, she's going to be able to replace him. I'm sure the show will be able to move on without his involvement. And the show will still be able to be strong. And uh, I think it'll still uh, be one of FX's best series, which is saying something because that network's got a handful of them. I'm telling you what. So Better Things, uh, Season 2 just wrapped on FX. Seek it out wherever you can. Ten episodes per season. Such an easy watch. Half-hour episodes. um, And just a really cool show. I think especially if you're female, if you... Um, are a mom if you had a single mom growing up i think you'll really like it and just if if you're a human being i think you'll like this show it's just a really human show and it's just a really well-made television show that is going under the radar for whatever reason Uh, but it certainly deserves better than that when when better things came out it came out at the same time as atlanta on fx and atlanta got all the pub everyone loved atlanta everybody acted like this was the second coming of this was the greatest show to ever be made on television and i thought better things was better than atlanta from the jump i just thought it was a a, just a better show all around i liked everything about it more i liked the characters more i just thought it was you know a little bit more experimental a little bit more different and I liked the show better, but of course Atlanta went on to win everything. And Atlanta was a, a fine show, good show, in its own uh, in its own way. I, I loved you know that first season. I really liked it a lot. But I think Better Things is like kind of like the little stepchild there at FX of those two comedies, and uh, it needs to get some more love. So seek it out wherever you can. Check it out. Better Things, two seasons. Third season's coming out next year on FX. All right, I'm going to toss things over to our music editor, Andy Sedlak. Let's see what he's got here in this year-end wrap-up edition of the Stream Police Podcast, our last one for 2017. What do you got, Andy? Take it away. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's wonderful to be with you. 
I uh, I hope everybody had a good Christmas. My wife and I did the relative circuit. We made three stops, each of them over an hour from the last. Looked at each other Christmas morning, and it, we were like, all right, you ready? Yeah? All right, well, let's roll. <laughs> but it was fun. Had a white Christmas. Everyone is healthy, happy. Uh, that's all you should ask for anyway. And now look at this, 2018. It's been officially 10 years since the release of Lil Wayne's The Carter 3. Uh-huh. I say he's so sweet. Come on, another rapper. So I let her tell her. She say I'm look, 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 like a lollipop. She say I'm look, 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 like a lollipop. Shout yeah, hard to believe. Also marks 10 years since the release of Guns N' Roses' Chinese Democracy. The Guns in the band's name, could have referred to the hired guns. They are uh, reunited now, but there's no Slash on that record. No Izzy. No Steven. Just Axel and the hired guns. That was the first Guns N' Roses album since, uh, let's see, 1991. We spent close to 20 years wondering if we'd ever hear Chinese democracy. And now look at that, it's 10 years old. 2018 will mark the 20th anniversary of the following songs. How about this? 3 a.m. by Matchbox 20. Believe by Cher. The Boy is Mine. Brandy and Monica. And my lord... Say It Ain't So, The Dope Show by Marilyn Manson. We're all stars now in the dope show. Also marks the 20th anniversary of Getting Jiggy With It by Will Smith. 2018 means that uh, it's been 30 years since public enemies bring the noise. My, my, my. All right, if you have a minute, head over to OverdueReview.com. I've got uh, I've got a new post up called the 17 Best Songs of 2017. And I, I doubt you'll guess what, what I have listed at number one. But as I was going through the year in music, gathering material for that post, I, I, was, I was pleasantly surprised uh, that there was more good music than I remember hearing at the time. More good music than what I remember hearing over the course of the year. Kind of like, you know, I, I would come across a song and be like, oh yeah, that one, and that one, oh yeah, that one. There was a lot of quality stuff that was put out. But if there was one sound that dominated mainstream music in 2017, it was the influence of trap music. More specifically, the mixing of trap and EDM. And when I say trap, here's what I'm talking about. 
fucking hoes and popping pillies, man, I feel just like a rock star. All my brothers got that gas and they always be smoking like a rock star. That's rock star from Post Malone in 21 Savage. That's Bodak Yellow from Cardi B. So, so musically, it's spare. It's pretty stripped down. So let's look at two things. First, what is trap music? I mean, exactly. What is trap music exactly? And two, what kind of future does it have? You may hear my dog barking in the background. That's the uh, joys, part of the joy of home recording. <laughs> Little Jack Russell, he's, he's out of his mind. First things first, what is trap music? If there's an instrument responsible for trap, what is it? It's the drum machine, right? Specifically the Roland TR-808. Trap music kind of evolved or grew out of what used to be known as like the standard 808 beat. That's what its musical identity is. It's like what the electric guitar is for rock or what the turntable was for early hip-hop. And as I mentioned, any more trap music, sort of a cultural term that encompasses sort of the, the original trap, but also the music gets influenced in both pop and EDM. The term trap, by the way, is a spot or a location where drug deals go down, right? In case you didn't know. Made its way into the pop culture with this song back in 2015. Here we go. I'm like, hey, what's up? Hello. Since you're pretty as soon as you came in the door. I just want to chill. Got a sack for us to roll. Married to the money. Introduced her to my stove. Showed her how to whip and now she remixing for low. She my trap queen. Let her hit the bando. That's Trap Queen from Fetty Wap. Some of the biggest trap artists, 2 Chains, Migos, DJ Snake, Diplo, Lex Luger, Waka Flocka Flame. Earlier this year, 2 Chains gave an interview to Rolling Stone where he said the following. This is from 2 Chains. We are pop stars now. Trap is pop. People's ears have adjusted to what we have to say and how we say it. Trap music, the sound of mainstream music in 2017. Trap gained, uh, let's see, mainstream popularity through internet videos. Remember the song Black Beatles? That was the song that everybody did the mannequin challenge to. There was a Migos meme... uh, That was big not long ago. So lots of people are on social media every day, and lots of people are seeing and hearing this music every day as a result. Songs can break on social media the way way they used to break on the radio, part of what made this 
trap music, the mainstream sound of 2017. Our second question, what kind of future does trap music have? Well, that depends on how much faith you have in its players. In successful major musical genres, there were geniuses to push them out of their infancy. Chuck Berry in rock, Hank Williams in country, Grandmaster Flash in hip-hop. Trap most likely will remain a subgenre, like punk rock or alt-country or southern rap. Each of those subgenres of music are, are 20 years old or more. People still play them today, but they're not mainstream. They'll bubble up every now and then. But most of the time, they're played away from pop audiences. The more inventive the players, the more prominent the genre will be. So the question is, how much faith do you have in Trap's players? In this case, that's the rappers, the DJs, and the producers. What kind of future does trap music have? Well, if you sense that DJs will rule things in the next century, then maybe we better get used to trap music. On the other hand, if you think that 808 beats can only entertain the ear for so long, then maybe it's run its course. What do I think? I think we better get used to electronic music. That's just me. Trap music, the major... Sound. If 2017 had a sound, it was rooted in trap music. Of course, we also live in an age of music where it's not unusual to find your tastes in the past. I just turned 30, and that's something that my generation has always done. Because of the, well, there are a bunch of reasons. One of them, the sheer just commercialization of the music that we actually grew up with sometimes we find the truest stuff back along the trail whether we were alive when it was new or not I think you guys know I I, I consider myself a music historian so do a lot of my friends they're excited to go back and collect older music they're probably more excited about that than they are about anything new that's coming out record companies know that And that's why the reissue business is so huge. Listen, this year there were reissues from Bob Dylan, the Beatles, U2, Montrose, the Stones, the Jam, and Metallica, who reissued Master of Puppets, that box set, especially huge, 10 CDs, 3 LPs, DVDs, and actually a tape cassette. It's of uh, Cliff Burton's last show with the band. Just the kind of stuff that fanboys get off on. It's intense. But if I had to recommend one, it would be the Bob Dylan set. It's called Trouble No More, part of his bootleg series. Captures his live period from 1979 to 1981. If you know anything about the career of Bob Dylan, you'll know that he went full Jesus during that time period. Became a born-again Christian in a way that no other pop or rock star ever had. Stopped playing his old material and only played his new uh, evangelical songs on stage. So when audiences went to a Dylan show during that time period, they did not hear the times they are a-changing. They did not hear Like a Rolling Stone or Tangled Up in Blue or I Want You or Lay, Lady, Lay. He sermonized from the stage and wrote songs that were all in. The band that he put together was one of his best, and he's had a lot of good bands. From Jim Keltner's Drumming On Up, this one was, was phenomenal. 
And I'll say one of the most powerful things about music in general is that it has the power, the potential to change your life. That said, the reality of the situation, the reality is, excuse me, not much of it actually does. But the best stuff has the power to do it. In this material that he recorded in the late 70s and early 80s, I'm telling you, man, it can do it. It's hardcore. It's insightful. Much of the writing is straight from the Bible. Dylan's delivery is is as intense as it was at any point in his career. Powerful, powerful stuff. Forget about whatever preconceived notions you may have had about quote-unquote Christian music or gospel music. You've never heard it like this before. And nobody has ever recorded it this way since. And if you have the guts to take it on, it is called Trouble No More. Three LPs, two CDs. From the man himself. There's also a, a, a deluxe package with a live DVD from the time period. You may come out of it a different person. With a high degree temperature, the world's coming to an end. The world's been standing around like furniture. What did I say about Claudette? Now, where are we? Ah, uh, yes, the recommendations. As you know, friends, we're building the most perfect playlist known to man. It's up on Spotify right now. All you have to do is search Stream Police. In every show, we add five more songs to our playlist. And here we go. First, and this just might be the perfect song. I don't want to build it up too much, though. From the Rolling Stones, it's Time Awaits for No One. And speaking of weights, there's my dog again. I don't know if you can hear him. His name's Desi. (laughs) Speaking of weights, I'll give you Tom Waits, particularly poignant since we just celebrated Christmas. This is called Christmas Card from a Hooker in Minneapolis. Charlie, I'm pregnant, living on Ninth Street. Above a dirty bookstore Of Euclid Avenue I stopped taking dope 
drinking whiskey. My old man plays the trombone, works out at the track. Never been to Minneapolis myself. Third, we have Havana by Camela Cabello. Then we were just talking about Metallica and Master of Puppets a little bit earlier. I'm going to give you the song that kicks everything off on that album. It's called Battery. Finally, from Robert Plant, Solo, this is In the Mood. All right, that's it. Thanks so much. Behave yourselves in the new year. Talk to you next month. Peace. Thank you, Andy. Much appreciated, my friend. You can go on to the website, OverdueReview.com, and see Andy's 17 picks for the best songs 2017. You see what he did there? 17 songs for 2017. I'm guessing next year I can expect 18 songs. Is that correct? I don't know. We'll see. It's a lot of songs. And of course, that uh, greatest playlist that he's always touting, the uh, perfect, the Stream Police Podcast Five Songs playlist, as we've called it, is available for you um, on Spotify, you can subscribe to that playlist and see all the latest editions as they're added. And you can listen to it anytime, uh, and you should be able to uh, to find it there. It's an ever-expanding playlist that he's been working on for years, and I'm sure will be working on for years to come. 
All right, let's move along here on the Stream Police Podcast. Once again, I'm Clint Davis, Movies and TV Editor at OverdueReview.com. Always welcome your comments at theclintdavis at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Mr. Clint Davis. Okay, real quick on television, I did want to mention that since the last time we spoke, I became a fan of Netflix's show The Crown. I never gave The Crown a second of my time. I don't know why. I don't know if it was snobbery or if it was just like, I don't really care about the royal family very much. I've never really been into costume British, you know, royal family drama. Never has been my thing. I never watched Downton Abbey. I know that wasn't the royal family, but you know what I'm saying. Just not really my thing, the high society British thing. Not not really what I'm into and never have been into. But my wife, big fan of The Crown, watches the uh was watching the second season of the show and I happened to be in the living room with her as a few episodes were playing I was doing some other things and slowly I started to realize that wow I'm really interested in this and I want to know what the hell's going to happen and so I wouldn't let her watch it without me and so we watched the last few episodes of the second season together now I haven't gone back and watched the first season yet she tells me it's just as good but I was a fan legitimate fan of the second season of The Crown. And Beth, I'll give her credit, she did say that I was going to be. She she thought I'd really like this show because she she knows, she's like, it's got the things that you're really into, which it's got the number one thing you're really into, which is great acting. That's what I always say. I don't really care what the story's about. If there's great acting in it, if there's great acting to be found, I will be a fan of whatever it is. And The Crown has got fantastic acting. I mean, you talk about every person in the cast pulling their weight, and this is a big ensemble cast playing a lot of real-life people and just acting their asses off. Fantastic acting, lush sets. I'm talking about sets that look like they went to Buckingham Palace and really filmed the show there. I don't know what the production is like. I don't know how they pulled off some of these sets, some of these outdoor locations as well, but just beautiful locations that look like, and this these first two seasons of the show are set in the 1950s and 60s, and, I mean, it's got that Mad Men vibe, you know, with the old costumes and not – it doesn't have so much smoking or drinking as Mad Men. But it's got just those beautiful um, costumes and it's got the cars and it's got the uh, the architecture, you know, that was, that was big back then and the, the interior design elements that were big back then. And it, it just all looks very good. This, this show looks very good. It looks cinematic. Um, and so Netflix has done a very good job of putting this show together. Uh, and you can tell they threw a lot of cash at this show. And I'm I'm having, having to imagine that it's paying off for them. I think the show's been popular. It was a, a big success critically. And it won the Best Drama Award at either the Globes or the Emmys. I think it was at the Globes that it won the Best Drama Award, actually. And kind of surprised people because it wasn't expected to be the winner uh, of, of the big, big award. But um, I can see now after watching this second season, like, why this show has won these kind of awards and why people talk about it as one of the best TV shows uh, going on right now. You've got storylines that involve major players in history that never die. I mean, you got people like Winston Churchill and JFK and Jackie Kennedy and, you know, people who people today are still interested in hearing about, even though they haven't been relevant, they haven't been alive for decades. Is the show a bit stuffy? Definitely. It's definitely a bit stuffy. But I feel like perhaps that may be for the best. I mean, these people, these are not like fun-loving party people. These are serious people 
in serious times. I mean, this was this is not a comedy, and th- this was a time in Britain where people were worried, you know, that the world had, had just come on the brink of World War II. The world had been, you know, on the brink of collapsing, essentially, civilization as we know it. Horrible atrocities were carried out in, you know, countries that were thought of as first world places. I mean, this wasn't some kind of thing that was relegated to the third world. I mean, these were things that were happening in England's backyard. So the world was at a very fragile place at the time that this show is set. And it was also at a revolutionary place as well. And and the world and people in Britain were kind of maybe not so in love with the monarch anymore. They didn't feel like it was really, it wasn't necessary. You know, obviously they didn't need the queen to tell them what to do. They didn't need, uh, you know, a, a monarchy to keep the country in order. They had prime ministers, they had parliament, they had, you know, all kinds of other checks and balances in place that didn't always exist. So it was an interesting time, you know, to be in the royal family. And I think that all these things are explored in the show. But like I said, a little bit stuffy. Definitely a little bit stuffy, but anything else would feel kind of weird. I'll be interested to see how the look of the show changes as they jump forward in time, because that's what they're doing. Uh, The way that this show is going to be done, they're doing six seasons, in case you hadn't read this. And every two seasons, they're going to have a new cast, a new female actor playing Queen Elizabeth, and it'll be set in a different time period, so a different point in her life. So that's why they're going to change actors. They're not going to do like the old person makeup that they maybe would have done. They're just going to skip ahead. They're going to go with a middle-aged actor for the next two seasons um, to play Queen Elizabeth because this I don't know when it's going to be set, but I'm imagining like the 80s, maybe the Thatcher era uh, Queen Elizabeth. And then they're going to jump forward in time even more uh, for the, se- for the uh, last two seasons to, I'm guessing, maybe more modern times when she's the age that she is now, and she's getting way up there. So they have to have a, a much older female actor for those scenes. They can't have Claire Foy wearing this old-ass, you know, looking makeup uh, because it'll just look too goofy. So I'll be interested to see, will the aesthetic of the show also change to be more like 80s, to be more like today? I don't know. We're going to see, though, uh, uh, how they're going to do it. I think it's it's safe to say that Season 3 of The Crown is going to be one of the most hotly anticipated and intriguing seasons of TV that, that we've waited for just because of how much they're going to change the show. I mean, you talk about fundamentally overhauling the entire show in the middle of its run and what's been a very successful run. It's a risky thing to do, but uh, that's been their plan all along, so I'll be interested to see how they're able to pull it off. Replacing Claire Foy is going to be a tall task because – from watching her in this role, she is incredible as Queen Elizabeth. I mean, she gets all the emotion in there. She makes her into a an interesting a figure that I really had no interest in before. I'm sorry, I just didn't. She made her into someone I'm really interested in and really want to learn more about and made her very human, which is not something that you can say about a lot of monarchs. It honestly seems like Claire Foy was born to play this role. Like This is the role that she'll probably be known for for the rest of her life, even though she's still pretty young. She's got a lot of acting left to do that's not going to be playing Queen Elizabeth. But it just seems like this. she was born for this role, and she, she got into it full bore. And it's going to be hard to replace her, that's for sure. So The Crown right now, two seasons of it are on Netflix, streaming for you. Check them out, and uh, I'll be, I will be tuning in for season three, and I'll probably be going back to watch season one now. As well, but I, I became a fan, man, since the last time we spoke. I never thought I would, but I became a fan of the crown. I just want to admit it to you.
All right, now something that I've always been a fan of is Star Wars. And Star Wars The Last Jedi is now in theaters. I went and saw it with Beth, and I want to give you my thoughts on the latest entry into the Star Wars saga. Episode 8 of the Star Wars saga, the Skywalker saga. So not including Rogue One. Including Rogue One, we're talking about the ninth Star Wars movie here. Live-action Star Wars movie. Jesus, there's been so much Star Wars stuff. It's so hard to keep track of. But The Last Jedi, definitely one that you got to see, obviously, if you're a Star Wars fan. So here are my thoughts on the movie. I loved it. And if you'll remember a couple years ago, I put The Force Awakens on my list of the best movies of 2015. Uh, I loved The Force Awakens as well. I, I, I get now that it was a lot of recycled, nostalgic stuff that J.J. Abrams and Kathleen Kennedy and everybody else knew was going to work because it had worked back in the original trilogy and people just wanted to see those movies again, but Lucas refused to make those movies again, so Disney went ahead and did them. I totally understand the, the critiques and the, the, the reasons why people slammed uh, The Force Awakens, but I, I still stand by it. We went back and rewatched it again a, a couple months ago, and it's still a really cool movie. It's still a really fun movie, and seeing it in theaters was awesome. But The Last Jedi, I think I liked even more than The Force Awakens, and I think it stands on its own maybe a little bit more. The movie was so intense, first off. It had like five different scenes that I thought were going to be the ending scene. Like I was sitting there in the theater, and I'm just thinking, like, okay, here we are. We're at the last battle now. We're at the last moment. And no, it wasn't. There were still like five or six more last scenes to go after that. So it just kind of kept, and not in a bad way, like not like Lord of the Rings Return of the King where you're just like, oh, Jesus Christ, well, is this thing ever going to end? There's like 20 fake out endings in that movie. This one, like these were all really intense scenes. Like every one of them I thought was the climax, but they were not the climax. They just kept coming. So it's uh, it was it was a really really intense movie, no question about it. Definitely one that you, I recommend seeing in theaters for maximum effect. I'm glad that uh, Ryan Johnson, who directed the uh, Last Jedi, and I'm glad that the producers of the Star Wars movies have taken Rey's storyline, the character played by Daisy Ridley. They've taken her storyline to more interesting places than just you know, oh, who are her parents, which is explored a little bit in this movie, but. It's not really the big the big thing. And and also, oh, will she and Finn find love together? I mean, who cares, first off? That's not really we don't really need that right now. And I'm so glad in this movie they kind of put that to bed a little bit. Not literally. They they figuratively put the Finn and Ray romantic storyline to bed a little bit. They put it in the rear view fully in this movie. Mark Hamill also, coming back as Luke Skywalker was fantastic in this movie, and he looks great. He, you know, like, got fit. I don't know if he had really gained any weight, but he, I mean, he pretty much had just been doing voice acting for the last 20 years or so. So, I mean, you don't really have to be in shape to do that. You just have to sound good. And and you remember Luke in the original Star Wars movies, like how much of a weenie he sounded like? If anybody needed vocal training, it was Mark Hamill. And he took advantage of that. He made himself one of the most in-demand voice actors in the world. And you can totally tell when he's playing Luke in this movie, that all that voice training has come in handy because he sounds menacing. He sounds tough, man. And Luke Skywalker never sounded tough before. We were always just led to believe that he was tough and we had to, you know, be told that he was tough. But now you're really think you're like, damn, he's a, he's a, Luke's a little bit of a hard ass now here after he's been living on this Island on the, you know, outskirts of the galaxy 
for a couple decades. Like I said, though, Hamill is very good in this movie. He looks very good as Luke. And he made Luke just much more interesting and more badass than he ever was in the original trilogy. Even as the as the hero of those movies, he just wasn't all that interesting. You know, everybody thought Han Solo was more interesting and Leia was more interesting. Vader, there were a lot more interesting characters than Luke Skywalker. But here he's really an interesting character now and he's a big time badass. Although I do have to say that the storyline they gave Luke Skywalker in The Last Jedi, not one of my favorite parts of the movie. It, it does kind of make the character seem a little bit like a weenie. I mean, I just can't really buy that this guy, who was essentially responsible for bringing the Empire to its knees and for bringing down his father, Darth Vader, I just cannot really buy that Skywalker would give up on the Jedi Order so quickly just because of one bad egg, which that's explored in the movie. I don't want to reveal too much. I'm not going to reveal any spoilers for you. But one bad egg, and all of a sudden he's done being a Jedi, and he thinks that being a Jedi is stupid. I mean, he would turn his back on it that quickly. I mean, has Obi-Wan not been visiting him as a ghost? You know, has, has he lost touch with his Jedi forefathers? I mean, it just... I don't. It's hard for me to buy that he would give up so quickly after he had gone through so much. It kind of makes the original trilogy seem pointless if Luke Skywalker would just turn his back on it that quickly. But thankfully, General Leia has been keeping the hope alive, and she's been staying at it. And this movie gives Carrie Fisher one last great vehicle to show how great of an actor she really was. And getting to see you know Princess Leia, General Leia... Again, kicking some ass, taking some names, being a mentor. And she's in this movie a lot. I mean, they, they filmed a lot of this before she died last year. They filmed all of her scenes. So it doesn't feel like she, you know, like anything was rushed or anything was digitally manipulated or whatever. This was this is all just, you know, pure acting. And, and it's just fun to see Carrie Fisher again on screen you know, doing a great job. And also to see her daughter, Billy Lord, playing a little role in this movie as well, having a couple scenes with her mom. So... Uh, pretty cool stuff in Star Wars The Last Jedi. If you're sentimental like I am, you'll dig that stuff. And let me talk about the action sequences. The action scenes in The Last Jedi were some of the tightest and some of the best that I've seen in any of the Star Wars movies. I mean, that that was one thing that George Lucas was really good at. He was good at doing action scenes. but I, And I feel like Ryan Johnson is also has proven that he's very good at doing action scenes. His action scenes in these are, are this movie are really intense. And in theaters, man, I mean, just the sound effects were huge, booming. The seats were shaking purely from the sound. Um, and it's just a really well-done movie as far as the visual effects go and as far as the sound goes. But, I mean, what else would you expect from Disney and Star Wars at this point? This movie also had had more laughs than I was expecting as the second piece in a trilogy. We all know that the second piece in any trilogy is always the that's always the grim one, right? That's always the one where things are bleak and at the end things are supposed to be like hopeless so that they can come back in the third one and the heroes can kind of rise above. You remember the ending of The Empire Strikes Back? I mean, it's one of the all-time legendary bummers in like movie trilogy history and The Empire Strikes Back was such a great movie. Because it, it did it. It kind of took everything that A New Hope was good at and it just amplified things even more and set you up, left you salivating for uh, The Return of the Jedi. But this one was a little bit funnier. This one was one of the funnier Star Wars movies that's been made. It might have been the funniest Star Wars movie that's been made. And I didn't have any problem with that at all. The jokes uh, felt like they belonged. I, I will say the only time that I felt like it was a little ham-fisted 
was were some of the scenes with Donal Gleason, who plays the uh, First Order general who's on his ship, and he's kind of like the foil now to Kylo Ren, and he's just trying to make things happen, trying to impress his bosses at the First Order, trying to impress Snoke, and of course he can't do it. And th- that scene almost felt like something a little bit out of Spaceballs, when he's being dragged around the deck and he's you know being made a fool of just felt a little bit like Spaceballs didn't feel like Star Wars to me it just was a little bit too light a little too slapsticky for me especially where it was placed in the in the uh, movie I really like the new additions to the cast Laura Dern I mean you can't go wrong with Laura Dern ever Blue Velvet Jurassic Park I mean what do you what do you want she's she's fantastic and she's having like a renaissance of her own right now with her work in uh, wild a couple years ago and uh, big little lies and she's just she's been laura dern's been having a, a very good couple years whoever her agent is is doing some great work for her. also a new addition to the cast kelly marie tran who played rose which is a, a new character new member of the rebellion who actually gets a solid bit of character development during this movie and uh turned into one of the characters that i'm going to look forward to seeing so disney's done a nice job of adding new characters with each new development not just sticking with the same old people um, I mean, Rogue One was w- showed you how great they were at adding new characters. I mean, that whole movie essentially was all new characters, and they were all really interesting, really fun to watch, and uh, it was just a cool, eclectic group of people out in the galaxy far, far away. One more thing on Star Wars The Last Jedi that's really cool. If you, if you watch the movie, and if you look around the frame a little bit, you'll notice that there are a lot more women and a lot more minority actors in roles that are not big, just background roles, which to me goes further in creating the idea of this diverse universe than simply having one or two minority actors in lead roles. That always feels token, you know, like, okay, we've got the black character. All right, we've done the black character. Okay, now we've got the female character. All right, we've got a female character. She's cool. Hey, we're even going to show that she can kick a little ass. How about that? All right, there's diversity. There's feminism for you. Call it a day. Check the boxes. Every other actor is a white man. That's that's not really good enough for me. When you, but when you populate the frames with minority, with with brown skin, or with uh, with women, or in some cases both, how about that? If you populate the background characters with those kinds of actors, it goes a lot further in showing me that this universe that the movie is set in is as diverse as the world that we live in now. And it lends to the credibility, and it just makes the whole thing more fun, more inclusive to watch, if you ask me. And it doesn't feel forced. If the camera pans around, there are a couple moments in The Last Jedi where I noticed this. The camera will pan around like a First Order ship or inside a Resistance base, and you'll just notice women sitting at battle stations next to men. You know, there are, some, there are men too, but women just sitting at battle stations. And these are not speaking roles. These are just roles that previously would have been filled by white men. I mean, they just would have been by default. But it's really cool. And to me, those are small steps that do not feel forced. And these are small steps by Disney and by Lucasfilm that go a long way in making women seem more in place in these movies, in action movies, in sci-fi movies, comic book movies. Women have always felt like um, also-rans in those movies, have always felt like they were shoehorned in. You know, just a token female character always thrown in. But doing things like that, to me, makes it feel more like, yes, women do have a place here. And it makes sense to me why someone like Leia Organa or like Laura Dern's character would rise to the place they're in because there are a lot of women working here. Um, 
as part of the rebellion in this world. There are a lot of women working as part of the First Order. You know, good and bad. It's just cool. And the leadership roles in this movie, as far as the good guys go anyway, were like all women that I can remember. They were pretty much all women. All the leadership roles, all the high-ranking officers, all women. So very cool. Just something to notice when you watch Star Wars The Last Jedi that I think you're going to like about the movie. I don't believe any of the garbage I've been reading about people not digging the movie. I've heard that you know the, the reaction has been kind of split among fans, even though critics loved it. I think it's a classic example of a few squeaky wheels making all the noise. Um, this movie has already grossed about $1 billion worldwide in two weeks, and it's on track to be America's top-grossing movie of the entire year after it passes Beauty and the Beast this weekend. Now, remember that when The Force Awakens came out, it became the highest-grossing movie in American history, all right? $2 billion worldwide, one of only three movies to ever gross $2 billion worldwide, along with Avatar and Titanic. That doesn't mean that just because The Last Jedi didn't do as much as big a number as, you know, The Force Awakens that it's not doing as well or it's a box office flop. I mean, that's ridiculous to consider a movie that made a billion dollars to be a box office flop. So don't listen to any of that crap you hear. People are that, That's just news organizations trying to get headlines that are going to get clicks. To say Star Wars is a flop, I mean, that's definitely going to get you some clicks because it's just not true. Something inside me has always been there. And I was awake. And I need help. I've seen Ms. Ross drink only once before. It didn't scare me enough then. It does now. So that's my take on Star Wars The Last Jedi. I really liked it a lot. Um... I think Disney's just keeping the keeping the, keeping it steady, man. The quality is very strong in these movies, and it shows how collaborative you can be. You don't have to have one director make all these make all the movies in a franchise. You don't have to have one guy write all the movies in a franchise. Just because he wrote one doesn't mean that he can write all of them, or she. So to hand things off to different directors, different writers, it's cool. It's cool to see, and I think it's it's lending. It's making the Star the Star Wars universe stronger than it would have been if it had just stayed George Lucas and if he had had his way and and there had never been another movie after Episode Three. These Disney additions to the Star Wars universe have been fantastic. They've been some of the best of the entire uh, of of the entire saga. All right, before I let you go, my friend, I once again want to help you build a better Netflix queue and give you uh, an Amazon queue and give you a couple movies that are now streaming, one on Netflix, one on Amazon. No rhyme or reason for these picks, just good additions that I think you're really going to enjoy. On Netflix right now, if you're a stand-up comedy fan and you've never watched Bill Hicks, of all the stand-ups I've ever watched, Hicks is probably the guy that makes me think the most and the guy that makes me laugh the most at the same time. Even more than George Carlin. I'll take Hicks over George. Carlin just almost like did too much and exhausts me a little bit um, with some of the shtick sometimes. Hicks doesn't have any shtick. All right? He's just... He's just like a philosopher and just a hard ass and just tells it like it is, man. And and Bill Hicks will expand your mind. And uh, it's such a shame that this guy died so early, as many of the great ones do. But Bill Hicks' revelations 
is right now for you on Netflix. Uh, this one was cut in 1993 in London when uh, Hicks had moved to London. He was an American, but he moved to England because he just didn't like America anymore, just flat out. He just thought people like Reagan and, and George H.W. Bush and some of the other politicians had kind of ruined the country, and he decided to move to London where uh, he got along a little bit better, and he did this last of his recorded stand-up uh, specials in London, and it's 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 a genius piece of stand-up comedy art. Bill Hicks' Revelations from 1993 right now on Netflix. Give that a watch. That's an hour that you will not regret, and you'll probably want to seek out the rest of his stuff as soon as you can. On Amazon right now is Fences from 2016. I raved about it last year. It was one of my favorite movies of the year. I thought Denzel Washington and Viola Davis were about as intense as you can get. This was based on the great... Um, stage play and it feels like a stage play there's only a couple scenes in the entire movie tons of dialogue if you love to watch acting you're gonna love fences it is like i said very intense it's not for the faint of heart um and it's got some great lessons about you know parenthood about mentoring your kids and also about how much do your kids really owe you at the end of the day and how much do you owe them at the end of the day so that's fences right now on amazon could not recommend that one anymore. All right, that's going to do it for another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. Thanks for riding with us, as always, my friend. Great to talk to you here about movies, TV, and music. Thank you very much to uh, Andy Sedlak, our music editor. We'll see all you guys in the new year, January. New episode of the Stream Police coming. Please recommend the show to your friends. Check us out at the website at overduereview.com. And uh, shoot me an email at Davis gmail.com t-h-e clint davis at gmail.com if you have any thoughts or uh, any requests for some things you want to hear me talk about here on future editions of the show until then talk to you next time stream on my friend Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.